You're listening to. Welcome to Books and Boba, a book club and podcast featuring books by Asian and Asian American authors. My name is Marvin Yue. And I'm Rira Yu. And we are here today for our first episode of the new year, 2024. Um, we're coming at you with an author chat today um, with Wendy Chin Tanner, the author of King of the Armadillos. Um, now, I know what you're thinking. Um, wait, isn't this supposed to be our book club discussion for our December book pick? Um, and... Yes, it was supposed to be, but some unforeseen circumstances have kind of forced us to um, push back the discussion a little bit. So if you're waiting for the episode, um, hopefully we'll have it out to you by next week. Um, But so we don't leave you with nothing this week. Um, We did record this author chat um, last month. And so we're just switching up the order a little bit and bringing you our author chat with Wendy um, first uh, for the month. But um, as always, our Books and Boba book club is supported by you, our listeners at patreon.com slash books and boba, where if you become a Patreon supporter of ours, you get access to our exclusive members only Discord server, as well as our monthly bonus podcast, Boba Chat, where our latest episode featured Rira and myself um, talking about our um, hopes and dreams for um, the podcast this year. Yeah. um, And, you know, it it was a month ago, but I like I really loved our conversation with Wendy. It was like King of the Armadillos was probably like uh, one of the more interesting books that uh, I read uh, last year. So King of the Armadillos, it follows Victor Chin, whose life is turned upside down at the tender age of 15. Uh, he is diagnosed with Hansen's disease, which, you know, otherwise known as leprosy. And he is forced to leave the confines of his father's laundry business in the Bronx. And uh, he is moved to a federal institution in Carville. Now, Wendy has, um, you know, family who was also admitted into Carville. So she had a very interesting background when it came to writing this book and i really enjoyed our chat with her yeah it was a really good take like we've read a lot of coming of age stories but this was also one that stuck out to me because it not only um, explores a piece of history a medical history that we weren't familiar with but she also mixes that with the chinese immigrant experience and you know for those of us who've ever dealt with health issues with immigrant parents you know that that comes with its own bag of issues so yeah i really hope you enjoy our conversation with Wendy Chintaner about her debut novel king of the armadillos and we're here with wendy chin tanner the author of the poetry collections turn and anyone will tell you the editor of embodied an intersectional feminist comics poetry anthology and we are here to talk about her newest novel king of the armadillos welcome to the show wendy thank you so much for having me it's a pleasure yeah we always love to start off our conversations getting to know our authors a little better um so can you walk us through i guess your what your journey was like in becoming a author and writer. For sure. That journey was long and meandering, as perhaps um, some other authors' journeys are. Um, I caught the writing bug very early 
as a small child. And, you know, I think if you grow up in a house with family secrets, that's very fertile ground for becoming a writer. In high school, I had some good fortune with publishing a few poems that I had written and I won a couple of writing awards. Poetry was definitely my drug of choice (laughs) and remained so for a very, 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 very long time. This is my first novel after two poetry collections. Um, So I never actually thought that I would write fiction before I then caught the fiction bug late. Um, So I'm going to take us back in time to the last decade of the last century of the last millennium to when I was a young person. (laughs) And um, I, I went to college in the UK. I went to Cambridge University where I studied for my first two degrees, English literature. And I continued writing there and I did theater and I did film. Um, And I published a poem in the Maze Anthology, which is the Oxford and Cambridge literary journal from which a lot of agents will headhunt for new talent. And I wasn't expecting anything because, you know, I already knew by that point that poetry doesn't make any money and is usually not agented. But I was surprised when I was approached by someone. I was approached by um, a London, um, a, a white male agent uh, from London. Um, and he said to me that, you know, of course, I'm not going to represent you for poetry, but I am looking for the new Amy Tan or the American Zadie Smith. <laughs> and no shade to Amy Tan and no shade to Zadie either. Um, but I don't write that way. So, you know, that was the first red flag. But quite honestly, I was so thrilled to be chosen by anyone at all. And I was 21, 22. I didn't know my ass from my elbow. (laughs) And I didn't come from a family where there was any sort of cultural capital to understand what that journey might be. You know, I didn't get very, I didn't get any advice at all from my family. They were pretty skeptical about the whole thing. Um, And I am a first-generation college student. So that was, that was another factor as well. It was very, very far away from home. So I, I went along with it. I thought that he was my best and only shot for getting into the writing business. I did what you're not supposed to do, which is go with the first guy who asks. Um, So I didn't realize that I had the right to shop around and that in fact, it's a good idea to shop around, right? Like for any kind of job and for any sort of school even, it's a good idea to apply to several and see what the fit is like, not just how you fit with them, but how they fit with you had no idea about this. I treated him like a professor. He said, okay, so if you're not interested in writing fiction, then you can try screenwriting. I had done a bunch of theater. I had made some student films and I had also worked as a production assistant over the summers in New York. So I thought, okay, I I think maybe I can do this. So I went off and tried to write a screenplay. When I showed him those pages, he said that the concept was unsellable. And the reason why he said it was unsellable was because I had a all Asian American cast. It was set in the 1970s and the protagonist was an Asian American man. So 
bear in mind, yes, this is the 90s, a very, very racist time, but it's not that different now, sadly. Um, So he said, okay, well, this isn't going to work. I can't sell this. You can either revise this or you can write me something else. And I took that so hard. You know, I took that as an indictment of my ability to write, basically. And I thought, okay, I guess this means that I'm not cut out for this business. I'm not supposed to be a writer after all. So I did what a good Asian American child does. And I thought about, okay, what can I do that's sensible? So I went back to graduate school at Cambridge to the sociology department where I studied cultural studies and discourse analysis and cultural production. And I stayed there for over 10 years. Um, I didn't write creatively during that time. I felt like it had been a huge failure. Instead of seeing what was actually a systemic issue, I saw it as a personal failure. So um, it wasn't until I became a parent in 2007, when my older daughter, who is now 16, was born, that I started to write again. And from that point, I haven't stopped. Yeah, that's like lovely to hear that you started with writing when you were younger and, you know, you went to grad school and then went back to writing. Because I feel like a lot of authors that we've talked to on the show, um, they didn't think writing was viable in the beginning and they go back to it in their later years. And of course, like nowadays, we have very young Asian American writers who are getting published like right after uh, graduating college. And as amazing as that is, I have great respect for older, like older late bloomers in in writing. We we definitely need more of them in this industry. Yeah, I am actually very grateful that going into the industry again, um, I was older because I think I really needed that maturity in order to weather the storms um, that come on the sea of the publishing industry. Uh, so this time around, I really knew what my deal breakers were. I knew what my needs were. I knew also that I should interview with as many agents as possible. So, you know, I hopefully did it right this time. And I certainly felt a lot better this time. Yeah, I just think it's funny that um, your story of meeting that first agent and him wanting you to be the next Amy Tan, because as we all know, there can only be one type of Asian American female author and they have to write about sad mother daughters, right? Exactly. I mean, it's the whole thing that Bia Tan Nguyen talks about, right? This is indicative of narrative scarcity. Yeah. I mean, speaking of like mother daughter relationships, I mean, your book is there. It's centered on, um, a a boy's experience and you have like the father, the brother and, um, the main character who is Victor. And I just thought that was like a different side to writing that I haven't really encountered lately. Cause I feel like there's so many mother daughter stories and I'm, actually like not quite sure why that is. Yeah, I'm not sure why either, but um, I certainly felt compelled to tell this story, which is based on my dad's experience, inspired by my dad's experience in the 1950s. So um, there wasn't any way around speaking from a teenage boy's voice. I think it's easy. Mother-daughter, especially Asian immigrant stories, it's easier to get into because of all the, you know, the trappings of patriarchy expectations. Like there is already like being a female 
especially Asian females, such a, like, it's hard, right? Um, but I think what your book captures really well is kind of the, how Asian boys are also trapped within like cultural expectations and what they should and shouldn't be and what they should and shouldn't do that gets lost sometimes because of, you know, of just the fact that, you know, there is a lot of male preference in, in our cultures, but there's, that still like messes up our boys too. Absolutely. That's such a great point. I love that you uh, saw that in the book. Um, one of the key questions or the core questions that I was asking myself and the reader in the book is how do we negotiate other people's needs with our own? And I think that part of Victor's coming of age in the book is to figure out what that means for him. Um, but speaking of your book, uh, can you give us a short elevator pitch of King of the Armadillos? Yeah, totally. Uh, King of the Armadillos is a work of historical fiction set in the 1950s in Carville, Louisiana and New York City. Um, it follows the story of a young teenager, a 15-year-old named Victor Chin, who is living in the Bronx at the back of his father's laundry when he is diagnosed with Hansen's disease, otherwise known as leprosy. His case is severe. He needs surgery and extensive treatment. So he's sent to the Federal Institution for the Treatment of Leprosy in Carville, Louisiana, where he has to stay until or unless he's cured. When he's there, he feels initially like he's been banished to a prison in the middle of nowhere, but soon he meets a community of patients from all over the country and all walks of life who become his friends and mentors and rivals. Um, as his body begins to heal, he falls in love for the first time and he discovers that he has a gift for music. Uh, and without too many spoilers, when the chance to finally go home and to get well comes on the horizon, Victor has to make some really hard choices. Yeah. So you briefly mentioned that. Um this book was inspired by your father's story. Um, and your father was diagnosed with Hansen's disease when he was a younger man. And he was a patient at Carvel, uh, much like Victor is in your novel. So can you tell us a little about your family mythology, should I say? Like, did you grow up hearing about your father's um, experience at Carvel? Very much so. My dad was actually there for much longer than Victor was. So he was there from 1954 to 1963, from the age of 16 to 25. So those were extremely formative years for him. And I most certainly grew up hearing all kinds of stories from him about Carville. His best stories were about Carville. So I always felt like it was a mythical place and a magical place like Oz or like Narnia. But um, I knew at the same time that we weren't allowed to talk about it outside of our home and not even to other relatives. It wasn't until the book came out, actually, that some of my aunts and uncles, my dad's own siblings, discovered that my dad was at Carville because he had Hansons. What they had thought or what they had been told by my grandparents was that my dad was down south for nine years because of his asthma. Now, I, I don't know how anyone could believe that, wow. but I guess that speaks <laughs> that humid air, you know, to the power of with. denial. <laughs> yeah, because like Victor, like Victor's family, they come up with the uh, 
the illusion of Victor having tuberculosis. And I was like, oh, like, I feel like that is more of a believable lie than asthma. <laughs> right. I, I had to improve upon my grandparents' lie. <laughs> uh, so how did your father react when you told him that you wanted to write a book about his experience at Carville? Like, was he, was he like, why? No, like, don't do <laughs> Like, what was his reaction? It never occurred to me to write a book about Carville until my dad granted me permission. So it was, in a way, his idea. Um, I don't think he necessarily thought I would write a novel because I wasn't a fiction writer and I had never even written a short story before this novel. So he wasn't expecting that. I think maybe he thought I might write a biography or a history or something like that. But uh, what happened was my dad had cancer in 2012-2013 and I'm an only child and like a very enmeshed Asian American only child I insisted that he come to my house for the duration of his treatment and I took him to every single appointment and it was at his final appointment where his surgeon um, was talking with him in his exit interview. And my dad was telling him about Hanson's and about Carville and his experience there. And the surgeon had never heard about it. He'd never heard of Carville. His mind was blown. He thought that Hanson's was essentially eradicated in the United States. So my dad and I walked away from that appointment thinking, wow, this is actually a lost piece of American history and American medical history that people don't know about. And maybe it's important to tell this story. And from that point on, my dad just decided that taboos were for the birds. And he said, if you want to, you can you can write about this. And he is the one who helped me get tons and tons of research material. He got me a backstage pass to the archives, which are housed at a museum in Carville. And the museum is run by an amazing woman named Elizabeth Schecksneider, who, after years of helping me with research, has become like a family member. (laughs) Um, She actually just sent my dad like a huge box full of pecans from Carville, uh, which was really, really sweet. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, so... That's how he feels about it. And actually, now that the book is out, he's super pleased, super proud. And he's also excited for himself. He thinks he's very famous and he wants to know when he's going to be on Oprah. I mean, there's still a there's still a chance of him um, showing up on Oprah. Um, But I'm guessing that you actually visited Carville in person. And if you have, um, how is it looking at the grounds through your father's lens? I'm sure. You know, he's told you a lot of stories about what Carville looked like. Yeah, it was an incredible experience. I did visit Carville. I've been there twice now. The first time was with my dad in 2016. And we were also with my mom and my husband and my two little girls. And it was shortly after the election, after Trump was elected. So you might imagine how we felt as a mostly Chinese American family flying into a very red state and a very red part of a red state too. But Carville has always been somewhat of an oasis and that's how it felt when we got there. This was my dad's first time back in 53 years. After he was discharged, he never went back until that day. And we were kind of retracing his steps 
in an interesting way. The infirmary has been converted into military conference housing. Um, and we were staying there. So the uh, Carville is basically now used by the National Guard for the most part. It also has the museum, but it is mostly National Guard folks. So we were staying in the infirmary. The first place we went was the infirmary, which was the first place that my dad went 53 years before. So that was a really amazing experience. And I think for him to go there with his whole family, including his grandchildren, was a huge moment for him because many of his peers either never got to go home at all or they didn't have full lives like he did. Yeah, I mean, I definitely learned a lot about Hansen's reading your book because it's it's a disease that even today carries a lot of like social stigma, right? Like people, when people hear about leprosy, they still react like it's something horrific, right? Because of, of the way it's been portrayed in media. And it was really interesting to, um, reading, you know, some of the Goodreads comments about your book and people still struggling with like the terms and how to refer to it. They always have to say, parenthesized leprosy or even refer to Carvel as a leper colony in some, some of the reviews that I read. And it's just like, have you followed the reception to your book and like what people feel about the disease? Yeah. I mean, leprosy is one of the most misunderstood and heavily stigmatized diseases on earth. And there are so many misconceptions about it. Um, I really, with this book, wanted to challenge not only its medical stereotypes, but the way in which Diseases such as that, diseases that carry such heavy stigma in society, dehumanize people and reduce them to their illness. So I really wanted to push back on that. And something surprising that has come out post-release of the book that I didn't expect because it's fiction um, is a kind of education and outreach component. There are people in the medical field who uh, seem really interested in the book, first and foremost, just as, I guess, as a form of narrative medicine to understand the lived experience of people who went through this. But also, um, the University of Washington still has a Hansen's Clinic, for example, and the director of it reached out to me and said that people are still so afraid of the stigma around leprosy that they do not come forward, particularly early, to get medical care. It's very easily treated. If you come in early, you know, it's just antibiotics and sometimes steroid treatment. And within days, a person is no longer contagious. But speaking of contagion, 95% of the human population is naturally immune. And of the 5% who are susceptible, they require prolonged contact in order to be infected. So in fact, Leprosy is one of the least communicable diseases. Um, so the panic around it is very much um, something that is created socially. It's a narrative. It's a discourse. Um, and the reason for the so-called leper colonies, the reason for isolation, quarantine, ostracization of people suffering from it was entirely political and not at all scientific. Because as you were saying, ain't nothing like leprosy to make the public panic. Yeah. Um, I'm guessing that you drafted this book during lockdown. I know that it was a long process for you to research, but I'm also guessing that it was a long process to write. Uh, so what was your experience writing a book about a Chinese-American boy with Hansons during a time when everyone was kind of 
paranoid uh, of catching COVID. And there was a rise in um, anti-Asian hate. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it was, it, it was a lot of cognitive dissonance on the one hand. On the other hand, I had brought my parents to my house in upstate New York, away from New York City, which, as you know, during lockdown was just terrible, horrific. We actually lost three family members, aunts and uncles. So it was a super scary time. And I was so grateful to be able to bring them up. But so I had my dad as a sort of captive audience <laughs> and and also as a uh, captive interviewee whenever I needed information from him. Um, I also bought noise-canceling headphones, which was very important because I have two children and my parents are also loud talkers. And my guest room is on the other side of the wall from my study. <laughs> so that was that was important. But certainly the anti-Asian hate was um, and, and the panic around COVID was very resonant of what I was writing about. And that's actually part of the power of historical fiction. Through the lens of the past, you can speak about the present. Um, so I was very much bearing that in mind. And something I discovered too, which I hadn't known before, even though I knew that disease stigma was associated historically with anti-Asian hate, what I did not know was that leprosy specifically was associated with anti-Asian hate. And um the first incidence of this was in San Francisco in the late 19th century. There was a labor leader named Douglas Kearney, who himself was an immigrant from Ireland, ironically. Um, and he waged a campaign to try to get the Chinese laborers out. He did the usual, you know, opium, prostitution taking white jobs, yada, 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 the usual, you know, spiel, but that wasn't good enough. So he then came up with um, an excellent idea, as it turned out, which was to say that Chinese people all carried leprosy and would oh, spread lovely. it to the American public. <laughs> yes. Um, he went so far as to find a Chinese American man with lesions on his face and march him through the streets of San Francisco saying to people, this is going to happen to you if we don't kick out the Chinese. And this turned out to be an excellent plan because lo and behold, the exclusion act gets passed not long after that. And then not only were labor leaders doing this, but the former head of Louisiana state's department of public health jumped on that anti-Asian bandwagon and spread misinformation saying that Chinese laundry owners in New York City and New Orleans were spitting on their clothes, spitting on the clothes that they were ironing and thereby infecting their customers with leprosy. So, you know, there has been a long history of this kind of this kind of association between leprosy and anti-Asian hate. Of course, the media ate this all up. And that news story was recycled again and again and again in the first half of the last century. So you will see it. You can track it through the news. It just pops up every few years because it's so scary and so salacious. It's, you know, old school clickbait. Yeah. I mean, history is cyclical and uh, people, you know, paranoia can do a lot of things. So, yeah. I mean, your story 
pre definitely folds in a lot of really juicy nuggets of Asian American history, um, including like Chinese railroad workers and even the American doctor in Korea who invented double eyelid surgery uh, is folded in there. Um, did you always have an interest in like Asian American history? Um, and how did it feel to like find ways to inject these little like these little tidbits into into your novel? Oh, yeah. I always had an interest for sure. I was that kid who wrote poetry and did theater, but was also on the debate team. <laughs> so I always had that kind of interest in um, social history, political history. And I was definitely an avid reader of Asian American literature and Asian American history. And I was that kind of person who just always wanted to hear the stories from the older folks in my family, and I would write them down or even record them on cassette tapes. So um, I collected a lot of those, and it was it was really cool to be able to Trojan horse some of this into uh, what is hopefully a propulsive narrative and a, a sort of emotionally resonant story. Yeah, I mean, I remember there's one scene in in the book where Victor is about to get an operation done and the doctor just casually mentions, oh, as a value add, we can also give you d- double eyelid surgery so you can fit in more with, with your peers. And just a great scene with just the most casual of unintentional racism. And I just, I definitely felt like the heebie-jeebies reading that scene. Good. I, that's what I hoped for. <laughs> I, I was about to say, like, the double eyelid thing, that has become so internalized by Asians and Asian Americans. Like, like in Korea, like, you, so many people get double eyelid surgery. And I'm like, the white people are not, like, making us do this anymore. Like, we are making that choice. And... um for me personally, I was born with just one double eyelid and my parents would be like, oh, you have to get surgery. So like you have like symmetrical eyes when you're older. And I'm like, I honestly do not care. But for them, they're like, it's it's a status symbol that you are able to like afford surgery and to look, you know, to do cosmetic procedures means that you have the money, you have the privilege. So I was like, well, this has evolved into... A totally different internalized racism. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's so interesting. I think the evolution of things like that are so interesting to me. Like, for example, I'm 47 years old and I don't color my hair. And my mother hates this. <laughs> she what? thinks that, you know, much like what <laughs> much like what you said about cosmetic surgery, it's something that you're just supposed to do to uh, show your prosperity, to keep up appearances, because it was only during times of deprivation in the old country that you didn't have access to hair dye. Yeah. Um, You have so much history in your book. Like Marvin said, like it's impressive that you were able to inject all these uh, tidbits about Asian American history, especially medical history. And you've talked about how um, you've never written fiction before, before this novel. Um, like, what was your experience like fictionalizing real people like your father and also Stanley Stein, who is a famous lifetime resident at Carvel? Like, did it help to have that distance? It absolutely helped to have that distance. That distance became vital for being able to tell the story that I needed to tell and to find the story within the history and find the story within all the data because there was such an overabundance of it. 
my dad, even in that first round, was able to get me hundreds and hundreds of pages of archival material, including his medical records, which were harrowing, and photographs and all kinds of uh, documents, all of the notes that his uh, nurses and doctors wrote about him over the course of nine years. And I should mention, too, that the nursing staff was mostly nuns, an order of nuns called the Sisters of the Daughters of Charity. And um, they were not only the majority of the nursing staff, but they were also really integral in the research. There was a research lab in addition to the hospital. So um, there was one nurse slash nun slash scientist, in particular, Sister Hilary Ross, who is also in the book um, under a different name, who was uh, very important for finding the cure in 1941, but she is, in my opinion, not adequately credited. And when I was in the archives, I was looking for oral histories. I was looking for um, the firsthand testimonies and narratives by young people in particular in the 1950s. And what's interesting, too, is that the 1950s were the heyday of Carville. And there were about 500 patients at that time. It was like a little town. And you had people there from all over the country. You had people from every single race, religion, ideology, social background. It was like a microcosm of the United States. You had people who were illiterate and you had people who had been socialites before entering Carville. What was interesting to me, though, was that 15% of that 500-person population were Asian-American. That's a really high percentage, given the percentage of Asian-Americans in America at large. So I was thinking that I really wanted to find some documentation on their experience there. And guess what? I found zero. (laughs) Zero. No firsthand narratives whatsoever. And I don't know if this is just because uh, they didn't want to talk about their experience because of the stigma. They didn't want to put it on record. I don't know if it was just institutional neglect or if it was something more explicitly racist. I have no idea. But what I do know is that there was a hole in the record and I really felt compelled to fill it with at least one firsthand narrative my dad's. Um, I should say too, to answer your previous question about what Carville is like, it's insanely beautiful. It's um, in a disused sugar plantation on the banks of the Mississippi River, 450 acres of verdant fields, and there's a lake, and there are pecan trees and a grove and live oaks with Spanish moss and all kinds of amenities like a volleyball court, a softball field, a golf course, a school where my dad graduated from high school. It was very self-contained, a post office, uh, a, a working dairy, a press from which the patients published their own magazine, which became very important to their civil rights struggle, uh, a recreation center with a theater and a library, a beautiful library, two churches. I mean, you name it, they had it. It was very much like a little village or a little town. And it looks more like a liberal arts college than it does an institution. 
it's absolutely beautiful. It was just like my dad described it. And when, when we went, it was almost like, uh, it was almost like a sense of deja vu that I had because, um, I had been imagining this place for so many years throughout my childhood, throughout my early adulthood that I had a, I had a vision of it in my mind. And that vision kind of matched what the reality was. I thought he was a little bit exaggerating, but no, it's, it's beautiful, haunting. Because, of course, as a plantation previously, it had always been a place where people were incarcerated. And all of that beauty is surrounded by a barbed wire fence. Yeah, I saw pictures of uh, Carville and I was like, yeah, it does look like a beautiful liberal arts uh, campus. And I thought it was very interesting that, you know, as beautiful as this place is, it is a place where you are trapped behind barbed wires. And Victor finds new freedom and experiences privileges while he is in Carville. Um, I mean, he's a kid from New York and he lived in like a laundromat. So obviously his world was so small and coming to Carville, even with having Hansen's disease, it opens up a whole new world for him. So what was it about this dichotomy that fascinated you well the dichotomy itself right the, the yeah. <laughs> interest is in the contra- the interest is in the contradiction right and just the nuance of the fact that um if you come from a certain social class like victor did like my dad did which was essentially poverty there is very little access and because of the leveling nature of the disease and the fact that this place was federally funded, everything was free. And so Victor and my dad were able to access the best that Carville could offer. And that included things like an education in music, private piano lessons, private voice lessons, private composition lessons, which Victor has in the book, but which my dad also had in real life. So these are things that he would never have dreamed of doing and would never have been able to do had he stayed in the Bronx. Yeah. Classical music, jazz music, that's usually affiliated with privilege, access. You need to have um, money to be able to have private lessons. And I thought it was really wonderful that Victor was able to have these private music lessons. And I thought that your prose um, was particularly beautiful when Victor was playing music, when he was experiencing uh, jazz for the first time. Uh, did Did you find that your poetry came in handy when you were writing these descriptions? And did you listen to music while you were writing those scenes? For sure. I listened to all of the songs that I put into the book. And uh, since I was writing it a lot during lockdown and, you know, during the lockdown, it extended lockdown, you could say, because my parents lived with us for a really long time because, um, you know, the, the threat of COVID was still really, really high in New York City for a very long time. So my dad still plays the piano every day. And my study is on the ground floor, as is the piano. So I could hear him playing through the door. And many of the songs, the uh, classical songs that Victor first learns are songs that my dad plays routinely. So that was really, you know, 
lovely to be able to incorporate that. Um, in terms of the jazz, um, that was actually something that the poetry helped with enormously because I think there's actually a relationship, a very strong relationship between jazz composition and poetry composition in the syncopation, in the, uh, in the beats, in the musicality, in the lyricism. Um, so I certainly used poetry to help with every aspect of this book because I had to kind of trick myself <laughs> into writing fiction. And I did that by pretending that I was writing prose poems, uh, little vignettes, images, snippets of dialogue. I, I just wrote them as prose poems. I kept them in my Google Docs under files called Nuggets. <laughs> and I treated them like they were scraps of fabric that I just had to trust that I would quilt together later. And that also came from um, my experience in having put together two poetry collections previously because the way I do it is to just accumulate lots and lots of poems, probably double of what I would put into a manuscript and lay them all out and try to find the patterns, try to find the narrative arcs and then put it together that way. Um, so I used the same technique for this book and I wrote it very much from the inside out. And believe me, I will never do that again. <laughs> it, took- <laughs> it sounds very difficult <laughs> and time consuming. Yes, I had to teach myself how to write fiction because I don't have an MFA. My graduate work was all in sociology. Um, and then my creative work was all in poetry and graphic novels. That also actually taught me something about storytelling, I should say. Um, but yeah, it was, it was definitely a struggle and it took me five years to teach myself how to write a novel. 20 drafts went into this book. Wow. I mean, I, I know for a lot of people listening to this, they probably think 20 drafts is a lot, but I'm like, that's, that's average. Like I've heard <laughs> of people writing like 50 to a hundred drafts. Yeah. I mean, speaking of vignettes, um, your book not only focuses on Victor's story, and his experience in Carville, but you also feature his family, his father, Sam, his brother, Henry, and his father's mistress, Ruth. And a through line um, in your story is the Chin family's members' complicated relationship with love and cultural expectations. Like each of them fall in love with someone society tells them they shouldn't. And it was a really interesting examination of like the clash of immigrant and American, like, quote-unquote, values and the ways that, like, Asian filial piety is, like, weaponized, right? Um, what inspired you to explore these tensions in your book? Well, I definitely wanted to um, encompass the entire experience that goes along with illness such as leprosy, because it affects not only the person suffering from it, but it affects the entire, fa the entire family system as well. So I wanted to tell that part of the story. Um, and I also wanted to look at family systems theory, in a sense. I wanted to understand why Victor was the way he was because of how his family was formed and the things that they had experienced. I wanted to tell a story that was more expansive than just Carville and just a coming-of-age story. Um, I think another impetus was that 
in my first stages of writing when I thought that it would still be nonfiction because that seemed like the most obvious first step for me, the least scary because, you know, it was like the most similar to sociology, um, sticking to fact and data. But I found myself writing these extra scenes, the first ones being about Sam and Ruth. And those were the ones that kind of kept haunting me. And I felt like they were the most alive for a very long time. Like the scenes in Carville with Victor were initially pretty flat until I made the leap into fiction and had more creative freedom around him. I think we all idealize our parents, right? And also I felt a kind of uh, self-consciousness around writing the character as fully as I had to in order to make him a real person, you know, I had to make him as messy and complicated as we all are. Right. But, um, Sam and Sam and Ruth are also somewhat based on inspired by reality. In reality, my grandfather did serve in the U S military. He did own a laundry in the Bronx. Um, however, he did not have a very close relationship with my dad. So I didn't know him very well. You know, I think after nine years of not being visited by your dad, when you're, you know, that far away and that ill, that's going to cause a little bit of a rift. So my dad was somewhat estranged from my grandpa already, um, by the time I was born or still, I should say by the time I was born. Um, so I didn't know him very well at all, but I did know I had heard whispers about the fact that when my grandmother was still in China for more than a decade, there was a woman. And this woman was a Jewish woman who lived across the street from his laundry. That's all I knew about her, nothing else. So I became really fascinated with how could this how could this happen? And how could this love story persist? Because I did also know that they were together for years. And my dad says to me now in retrospect, that she was probably the love of his life. And he didn't know her. He saw her from a distance. But, you know, the kind of relationship that Ruth and Victor have in the book is is not one that um, is based on reality. And in fact, in the fictionalized version, which my dad has, of course, read, he says that he wishes that it had been like that because um, Ruth in the book is such a maternal figure, an important maternal figure, a kind of um, stepmother figure for Victor. And my dad didn't have that. And, um, you know, he, he longed for his mother for decades. Yeah, we read uh, The Woman Warrior by Maxine Hong Kingston uh, for previously for this book club. And there is a chapter where um, like the main character finds out that her mother, um, like her, her father had a mistress and was living with the mistress for a long time. And um, it made me think, oh, this is this is something that was common. And um, it did cause rifts in families. But not just like by distance, but also like, like you said, like your father didn't have that relationship with, um, with his grandfather's uh, lover. So it's like, okay, yeah, like this is based on history. And I thought that was like really fascinating to see that type of story again in another fictional work. So that's right. I think that that, um, 
that phenomenon in Victor's family is common to many, many Asian American, Chinese American families in the United States because uh, of the anti-Asian immigration laws, the exclusion laws, you know, depending on the vicissitudes of immigration legislation, you know, people were not able to form families. Chinese American men were not able to marry Chinese American women and form families with them in the United States. So the ones who were able to go back to China and get married, they would have children and bring over their sons if they could, if they could find loopholes in that legislation of which serving in the military was one. So that's what my grandfather did. And this persisted for generations. So we see even today, I think the impact on mental health, on, um, parenting skills, on emotional health. We, we see that today, that legacy of that family separation. Yeah. Um, your book goes into uh, one of the vignettes is the boys coming to the States and going through Angel Island, going through the screening process. Um, you don't state it specifically, but you talk about Paper Sons in, in the book as well. Um, was this inspired by a family or was this just like a story you wanted to get on page? It was actually. So Jackie was inspired by my uncle Johnny, who was actually the first family member to pass away from COVID. Um, So he was our first, you know, COVID uh, Zoom funeral, uh, which was which was really awful. But um, yeah, so so paper sons were definitely a thing in my family. And um, I, I hope, you know, this Jackie's character is a tribute to my uncle Johnny in a way that he would enjoy because much like the character in the book, he was this kind of scrappy kid who was um, really funny. And even as an older man, when, when I met him, he always had this kind of glint in his eye and a kind of naughtiness about him. Uh, So we're uh, running short on time and I want to make sure I ask this question. King of the Armadillos, that is a very strange title, to to say the least. How did you come up with it? Well, armadillos are very important to Hansen's research because they are the only other creature besides human beings that can contract leprosy. And so they became um, very, very important in research at Carville. Um, especially from the 1960s forward. They were very helpful in terms of developing medications, surgery, et cetera, et cetera. But also armadillos are a metaphor. They have this armor, but they are so susceptible at the same time to so many things. They have this armor that I think was a metaphor in the book too for the kind of numbness, the kind of dissociation that many of the patients at Carville um, had to employ as a coping mechanism. But as we all know, like most coping mechanisms, that became maladaptive over time, especially for Victor. So part of his journey in the book is to reintegrate himself. Yeah. Before we go, um, I know you mentioned that this book took you years to write. Um, but, you know, got to ask since, since we're talking to you, are you working on anything else right now? Yes, I am. I sure am. And I'm excited to be able to like fully dive back into that kind of um, very internal space uh, that I require anyway to 
to write, especially a first draft. I am working on something very new because this is not historical fiction. It's contemporary and it is not a very serious subject matter. It is in fact satirical comedy and um, it's set during lockdown for the most part and it's um, kind of a family comedy but it's also a comedy that skewers marriage and sex and parenting and the various ways that we are um, impacted as women and the various ways in which uh, we have to twist ourselves into pretzels. Um, and the book is called Milf. Wow, wow that sounds really fun <laughs> and a definite like change of pace for you. I'm very happy for you because uh, going through all that research and writing such a serious subject, I feel like you need time to uh, have fun <laughs> with more fun topics. <laughs> Yeah. For sure. I think a lot of people don't realize after reading King of the Armadillos that I have a sense of humor, but I do. And it is pretty raunchy and irreverent <laughs> like the book is. My daughter, my 16-year-old was like, so you're the leprosy lady now, but then you're, you want to be the porno lady too? <laughs> I mean, there were some... I mean, we contain multitudes. I think everywhere all at once definitely taught us that, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, there were some like hints of steamy scenes within King Armadillo. So I, I, I could definitely see see um, you extrapolating on those like Ruth Sam scenes. And, and, and I know you can write a really great satirical drama about family. So I think this is a, this is a, this is a natural next step. <laughs> I will say, though, that I think that the um, sex scenes in King of the Armadillos are probably more sexy than the <laughs> sex scenes in MILF because the ones in MILF are just kind of ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, it sounds really fun to read. Oh, good. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Wendy, for joining us on Book Symbol. But it was such a great experience talking to you and learning more about your your inspirations and your thought process behind your book. Um, congratulations um, on your novel. And yeah, we we'll hope to, to see you again soon. Thank you so much. It was such a delight to talk to you too. And thank you for the work that you do here. It's so important. I love listening to your podcast. So I'm very grateful to be on it. And that was Wendy Chin Tanner. Um, her book, King of the Armadillos, is out now at booksellers everywhere, um, including, as always, the Books and Boba bookshop. Um, you can go to booksandboba.com and check out our online bookstore. Um, your purchase there not only supports um, the Books and Boba podcast, but also your local bookstore. So that's a win-win for everybody. Um, and just a quick reminder, you, you know, it's a new year. It's a perfect time. You know, if you have a resolution to um, support us at Books and Boba, you can go on to patreon.com slash Books and Boba and become an official Patreon member. Um, we'd love to see you on Discord to talk about uh, all sorts of things, including our, our book picks and whatnot. So, yeah, um, with that said, um, it is January 2024. Uh, Rira, what is our first book pick of the year? So we will be reading Meet Me Tonight in Atlantic City by Jane Wong. And it is a memoir about family, food, girlhood, resistance, and growing up in a Chinese-American restaurant on the Jersey Shore. And it starts in the 1980s. Um, and as you guys know, Atlantic City is kind of like Vegas, but on the East Coast, there it's known for like its casinos. And it, it is a very different vibe from... I guess, like New York City and uh, just New Jersey in general as someone who used to live in New Jersey. <laughs> 
Yeah, I'm really interested. Um, it's been a while since we we've read a memoir, and you know, listeners will longtime listeners will know that I do love a good story about a Chinese immigrant restaurant family. And you know, personally, I've never been to Atlantic City, but I have heard a lot about it. Yeah, and the memoir also dives into uh, the author's father's、uh, gambling addiction, and it's an addiction that causes him to disappear for days, and ultimately leads to loss of the restaurant. So, a little bit of a trigger warning there if you guys are sensitive to reading about gambling addiction, because obviously that is a very serious topic.、Uh, proceed with caution. I know that that is、um, a widespread problem in a lot of. Uh, Asian American families. I've like personally knew a couple of families who had dealt with that kind of devastation. So yeah, yeah. I kind of feel like that's an issue with a lot of working class families specifically, right? Like the, and then I'm sure the book, and we can go through the themes too of like what the American dream is and the idea that anyone can make it when the game is rigged, much like a casino game. So、um, definitely. Lots of interesting things to explore. I'm really excited to dive into this book with you all. And as always, if you've read the book and have thoughts to share,、um, please let us know either on our Goodreads forums or on our Discord server. If you're a Patreon member, we always love to include our feedback from our audience、um, in our podcast discussions whenever possible. So, yeah,、um, looking forward to a new year of books and boba.、Um, we have lots of cool things lined up, and are really excited to be able to share that with all of you. So,、um, thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you all next time. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening to Books and Boba. This podcast was hosted by Marvin Yue and Ri Ryu, and edited and produced by Marvin Yue. Follow the book club on Twitter and Instagram by going to @booksandboba and engage with us on Goodreads on our Goodreads group. You can also check out past episodes of the podcast by going to booksandboba.com and by subscribing to us on your favorite podcast app. Don't forget, you can support Books and Boba and Asian American authors by purchasing books at our bookshop.org account. Check out the link in our show notes and also at booksandboba.com. Books and Boba is a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective, a collective of Asian American hosted podcasts featuring unique voices and stories from the Asian diaspora. Learn more about the collective and check out our fellow Potluck shows by visiting the website podcastpotluck.com. Thanks for listening. Life gets a little crazy sometimes. Sometimes it's confusing. Sometimes it's funny. Sometimes it's beautiful, and sometimes it can just piss us off. Enter First of All Podcast. It's a safe space for real conversations about the things that we all struggle with, celebrate, contemplate, and work through in our daily lives. I'm your host Mindy Chang. I'm an actor, filmmaker, and entrepreneur with a colorful background, a full life, and brilliant friends who I love to unpack life with to share with all of you. They are everyday people like you and me, ranging from award-winning artists, cultural icons, powerful CEOs, my hilarious childhood friends, and even my mom. Tune in for honest conversations on mental health, dating, sex, family, career, culture, and everything in between. Listen to First of All wherever you find podcasts. Part of the Potluck Podcast Collective.